Forgive us, I pray. What a powerful thought as we enter into this second week of our series that we started last week. While serving in Cambodia, Dr. Jim Lowe, who is a Global Partners missionary, um, was a Global Partners missionary, he served for a time in Cambodia, he heard about two Christians. And one day these two Christians were approached by the Khmer Rouge soldiers to pick up the shovels and follow them into the jungle. And into the jungle they went, and they stopped at a very secluded place, and they were told to start digging. That they were literally digging their graves. The soldiers had been ordered to force Ham and his wife to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ, and that the Khmer Rouge rebels felt that Christianity was poisonous to the glorious revolution. So the soldiers had a plan. They would march them out into the jungle, they, Ham and his wife would begin to dig their graves and they would threaten them with their life that they would die if they didn't renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. While digging their graves, Ham and his wife refused to not, to, to not be a follower of Jesus. And instead of being angry and hateful towards his captors, Ham began to be compassionate and grace-filled. He began to tell them about Jesus and the hope and the life that Jesus offers. One of the soldiers, after listening to him for a while, talked to him in a very calm manner, Ham to the soldier. The soldier said, would you just stop talking about Jesus? We don't want to hear about him anymore. We just want you to stop being a Christian or we're going to kill you. Ham calmly replied to that soldier, we are ready to die. We are ready to die. The two soldiers were so stunned by Ham's response that they couldn't pull the triggers of their rifles. It actually took the commander of the soldiers to come in and to execute both Ham and his wife. And they buried them there in the graves that they had dug for themselves. The couple's unwavering faith in Jesus began to spread throughout that village in Cambodia and around the nation of Cambodia of how they stood up for Christ and how they graciously spoke of the love of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you a question this morning. It's kind of a somber way to begin. But I want you to think about this question. How would you have responded to Ham's captors? You have your hands on the shovel. You are digging your grave. And the captors are looking at you saying, you can live if you stop being a follower of Jesus. And if you don't stop being a follower of Jesus, we're going to shoot you right here in the jungle and no one will ever find you again. I would really love to believe that most of us in this room would respond in the same manner that Ham did and his wife graciously and compassionately begin to talk about the grace and the love and the hope of Jesus Christ rather than saying, yep, no problem, I won't follow Jesus, I want to live. I am fearful that many of us may walk away rather than stand there and be executed. I want to welcome you to week number two of our Easter series called The Road to Redemption. And Peter 
is our case study for the four weeks. And he is an interesting guy. He was a converted fisherman. He became one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was a rugged leader who was opinionated, strong-willed, direct, and became a rock of the early church, a foundational piece to the early church. However, our New Testament figure was not exempt from needing redemption. He needed redemption in his life, just like every one of us in this room needs redemption in our life. He was not exempt to that fact. In John 18, we discover that Jesus is facing arrest, persecution, and eventually execution. The response from Jesus is eerily similar to the response of Ham and his wife in the jungle of Cambodia. Jesus holds the cup of faith rather than wield the sword of combat. Peter, on the other hand, if you're familiar with the story, we're going to look at it, but Peter, on the other hand, does the exact opposite. He picks up the sword and does what? Off comes the ear of one of the men standing there that night. He holds the sword of combative confidence rather than the cup of faith. Let's take a look at some Scriptures, 12 verses actually taken from the Gospel of John chapter 18. John was a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he writes about what he saw on that night. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley to, with his disciples and entered a, a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples to pray and to fellowship While the leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him, some Bible scholars believe that could be as high as 600 soldiers that went with Judas. Now with blazing torches and lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Can you just picture this? This is a mob coming to Jesus. They have their torches, their lanterns, their pitchforks, their swords. They have a whole bunch of stuff. They're coming at Jesus. Jesus finally realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus Jesus said, I am he. They all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus was a Nazarene denominationally wise, but he was from Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given to me. Then here we go. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malachus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering? The Father has given me. Shall I not hold the cup rather than wield the sword? So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. 
In the first 12 verses of John chapter 18, they are action-packed. Like there is a lot going on in these 12 verses. Almost too much to talk about in 30 minutes. We probably could use it all afternoon to talk about what's just happening in these 12 verses. It reminds me kind of of a scene of a family gathering where a family member begins a discussion by talking about politics or (laughs) COVID-19. And suddenly the peaceful meeting, gathering, family get-together explodes into a showcase of poorly executed explosions and Grandpa ends up in handcuffs and dragged off to jail. It just kind of has that kind of a feel in John chapter 18. There are six major plots, and more than six, but I'm just going to give you the six major plots that are unfolding in these 12 verses. The first one is betrayal. Jesus is being betrayed by Judas. There's the plot of betrayal. There's the plot of confrontation. Jesus is in confrontation with Judas and his accompaniment of soldiers. There's a struggle. A struggle between Jesus, Peter, the disciples, Judas, and the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders of the day. There's bloodshed. Peter chops off a guy's ear. Guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a lot of blood. There's bloodshed happening in this scene. There's incarceration. Jesus is bound up and led away. He's going to be incarcerated. The sixth major plot, which we is a lesser known plot which we don't really see or hear about too much. It is this, combative confidence. We see that there is a combative confidence going on in these 12 verses. Peter, if you did not already pick this up, but Peter is already showing us a truckload of combative confidence. It's not a new struggle for Peter, and frankly it's not a new struggle for any one of us in this room. We struggle with it all the time. In John chapter 18, Peter exhibits a confidence that he is displaying that he knows best what's right for his life. That when it comes to God's plan for his life, Peter's saying, I still know what's best for me. It's evident in verse 10. Let's just go back to verse 10 for a moment, which is on the screen. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malachus, the high priest's slave. Verse 10 by itself looks a little odd. There's no context for what's happening here for Peter slicing the man's ear off with his sword. But if you go back to John chapter 13, you go, Pastor, we're going all the way back to John chapter 13 from chapter 18. That's a lot of time. It's actually only a few hours. In John chapter 13, this is what we find in verse 36. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord, he asked. Say it with me, church. I'm ready to die for you. This is Peter's response to Jesus in this conversation. I'm ready, Jesus, to die for you. And Jesus answered, you can almost sense there's some sarcasm in his response. Die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. Say it with me, church. You will deny three times that you even know me. Here in chapter 13 is a conversation between Jesus and Peter. Peter actually goes on record as to saying, you've got it wrong, Jesus. It's not me. 
Now, Jesus, if you want to label one of the other 11 disciples, I can go along with that. But I'm telling you, Jesus, straight up, it's not me. I am ready to die for you. I would never disown you. Jesus, this, you are wrong, Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, again, to affirm, you're going to deny me how many times, church? Three times. And Peter goes, I respectfully disagree, Jesus. Well, maybe Peter didn't do that. If you study Peter, he was probably not that gracious. But I'm giving him that one this morning that he was great. I respectfully decline or disagree with you, Jesus. There's an obvious battle that's going on between Jesus and Peter that flows from chapter 13 into chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. And here's what it is. That Jesus declares it and Peter argues it. Jesus declares it in John 13. And Peter does what? He argues it. Not not me, Jesus. I would never do that. I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. You have this wrong. I respectfully disagree with you, Jesus. He's arguing with Christ who has just done what? Declared it. He's declared it. It's a combative confidence from John chapter 13 that flows over into John chapter 18. Believe it or not, it's a battle that still rages today in 2022. This very day, in this very room, there are some of us who are fighting this battle. For many of us, Jesus declares it, and say it with me, and we argue it. Jesus declares, you are forgiven. Well, Jesus, you don't know my past. Like, I've done some pretty horrible things, and and I don't think your grace is able to forgive me. But Jesus has what? He's declared it, and we are arguing with him. If he says his grace is sufficient and is all-powerful and forgiving of all sins, then who are we to argue with the one who is forgiving us? Right? Right? Arguing with God is not a new issue. Many of the patriarchs of the Bible argued with God. Adam and Eve, they chomped down on the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to in the garden. And what do they do? They say to God, God, if you just had not put that tree in the garden, we wouldn't have done that. They're arguing with God, and God has declared... You can have everything here, but that one tree, leave it alone, and all will be well. He's declared it, and they're now arguing with God. Moses. God speaks to Moses and tells Moses, I declare, Moses, that you are my representative. You go tell my people that I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt. And you tell Pharaoh that he's to let my people go. And what does Moses say? Oh, not me, God. I can't even speak. I fumble over my words all the time. God, I'm not your person. Abraham. God declares it. Abraham argues it. In fact, even down into the current leadership of the church today, C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, this is what he confessed, my argument against God. He writes, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but How had I got this idea of of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? My argument with God. 
So many times Jesus declares it and we argue it. Why do we argue with God? Now, I know some of you very righteous and religious individuals in this room are going, Pastor, I never argue with God. <laughs> Just be careful how what route you take driving home today. <laughs> we all have at some point in our spiritual journey disagreed or argued with God. Why do we do it? Well, that's a good question, I think, this morning. Peter argued because of three main issues going on in Peter's life, which I think are three main issues that are going on in our life. He had trust issues, he had pride issues, and he had faith issues. He said with his mouth in John 13, I will die for you, Jesus. And in John 18, he tries to back that up by wielding the sword. But deep down inside, we know that Peter had to go through a process that Jesus had outlined for him because he knew that Peter didn't fully trust Jesus, didn't trust him. We know that Peter had pride issues because in John chapter 13, if he didn't have pride issues, he would have said, oh Lord, I am so sorry for what I'm about to do as you declared it. Instead he said, oh, not me. I'm not your guy, Jesus. He had faith issues, which tie into trust issues as well. You see, arguing with God comes down to two important questions. We sang about it this morning. We love to sing about it. We don't really live it, though. Is that a little too tough? Do we believe wholeheartedly, 100%, that God will fight my battles for me and that I don't need to do anything? Because I'll tell you what I observe in the church a lot. That we say, God's fighting my battles. But we are constantly meddling in the battle. Will we hold the cup of faith like Jesus and Ham and his wife in Cambodia? Or will we pull out the combative sword and say, Jesus, I'm going to do it for you. Mark Batterson made this wise statement, loved the stuff that he writes. He said, if you win an argument with God, you lose. And if you lose an argument with God, you win. Just don't argue with God. But if you're going to argue with God, I hope you lose. Because that means you'll win. Because if you win, that means you're going to lose. In John 13 and 18, Jesus declares it and Peter argues it. This combative confidence escalates when Judas shows up in John chapter 18 with a contingent of soldiers to arrest Jesus. Four, five, six hundred guys show up with Judas to arrest this meek and mild Jesus with 11 disciples. In the heat of the moment, Peter slices the ear off the servant making a statement or declaration in that moment of time that the apostle was desperately fighting to avoid what Jesus had already declared in John 13. See Jesus? I can almost see it as he slices the ear off of the guy. See Jesus? I'll fight for you. See Jesus? I'll, I'll go to the very ends of the world for you. See Jesus? I will never deny you. I pulled out the sword, Jesus. See, I'm with you. Have you ever felt the need or want to prove Jesus wrong? 
Have you ever had that feeling? Let me explain it this way. Have you ever told a child, your child, or your grandchildren, that don't touch the stove, and they in a combative way go right over and do what? Put their hands on the stove. Have you ever said to your child, don't play in the street? There's some very good reasons why you shouldn't play in the street. And you look out the window, and what do you see? Your child playing in the street. Have you ever said, don't do this? Only to see them in a very combative mode to do the exact opposite of what you said not to do. There are four years between our boys, and when our oldest son hit his teenage years, they were challenging days. I don't mean they were bad days. They were just challenging days. If you have teenagers in your life, or you know of a teenager, and I don't mean this to be funny, pray for them. The teenage years are the toughest years, I think, of any segment of a person's life because so much is changing. There's hormones that are changing. Your, your life is changing. Your school life is changing. Your peer life is... There's just a lot going on. And you really don't come out of that until your 20s, maybe 30s. <laughs> so pray for our teens. But when our, our son turned his teenage, it was just like a different, a, a different person existed in the house. It was just a different adult. Like was this, there was, you wanted to call this person an adult, but they really weren't an adult in some ways. And, and there was a lot of challenges that went on. And, and our youngest son, who's four years younger, who wasn't a teenager, he would always say, when I become a teenager mom and dad, I promise you, I will never act like that as a teenager. And we did exactly what you do. Just did with me, with, my, with me saying that is that, oh, oh, we laughed and said, yeah, that would be nice, son, but you will. <laughs> no, 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 I won't. I promise. And guess what happened when he turned a teenager? He did. <laughs> the very thing he said he wouldn't do, which we knew he would do. Let me offer you some advice. If Jesus declares it, don't argue it. If he tells you don't play in the street, don't play in the street. If he tells you not to touch the stove, don't touch the stove. If he tells you you are forgiven, you are forgiven. If he tells you go take this mountain, go take the mountain. If he tells you sit, be still, and listen, then sit, be still, and listen. If Jesus declares it, then don't argue it. Amen, church? Amen. You don't need to prove Jesus wrong because you cannot win. And you will not win. There's another person, just for a side note, there's another person in John 13 and in John 18 that is wrestling with combative confidence. Judas. Judas is obviously different than Peter. They are two different characters. But Judas has a confidence in what he does. And in the betrayal of Jesus, he is actually declaring that his plan was better than the plan that Jesus had been talking about. And in that, that's a com combative confidence. Judas, like Peter, is declaring, I know best. 
and Jesus, your plan is not really the best, and we know better. Unfortunately, Judas never does discover the road to redemption like Peter does. Thankfully, Peter does, and we will see this a little bit later in this series of how redeeming the Lord can be. When it comes to confidence, there is a healthy confidence and an unhealthy confidence. Healthy confidence, which is on the screen, is confident in Christ alone. Period. There are no additions to this statement. It's just a period. Healthy confidence, say this with me church, healthy confidence is confident in Christ alone. Period. We see this in Proverbs, Jeremiah, and Hebrews. In Proverbs, we find the wisdom of a statement, for the Lord will be your what, church? Confidence. And He will keep your foot from being caught. In Jeremiah, the prophet says in 17.7, but blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope. And say it with me, church, confidence. Not only is Jesus Christ our hope, but He is our confidence. We can have confidence in His ability, His strength, His power, His plan, His purpose. Everything about Jesus we can have confidence in. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, so we can say it with me, church, confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. Ham and his wife standing in their grave in a jungle in Cambodia. You may be able to hurt my body, but the Lord is my helper. And he is on my side. Healthy confidence is void of pride. It's humility in front of Christ. And it is full trust and faith in Jesus Christ. He declares it, and I believe it. On the flip side, unhealthy confidence is confident in self alone. Say that with me. Unhealthy confidence is confident in self alone. We rely on our own talent in this one. Our personality, our brain power, our talents, and we exclude God or If we don't exclude God, we come up with a hybrid plan where we want part of God's plan and part part of our plan, and we kind of marry them together. Unhealthy confidence loves to swing the combative sword rather than hold the cup of faith. The writer of Proverbs wisely made this statement, there is a path before each person that seems right. Say this with me, church, but it ends in death. There is a way that seems right to us but its end is death. Peter was on and is in this chapter and in chapter 13 and in chapter 18 and a little bit later in this chapter. He is on a path which he thought was right. But if he continued on that path, it would lead to death. Judas was on a path which he thought was right. And we know how it ended, right? It ended in death. I love this statement by Joe Holland. He said, faith is being honest with ourselves about God, who God is, the power of God, the grace, the strength of God. And repentance is being honest with God about ourselves, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we need His grace and power and spirit living in us. So if we're honest with ourselves and honest with God, then three things we're going to quickly look at here this morning. 
First, combative confidence is unable or unwilling to see God's plan. It's unwilling to see God's plan. You see, Peter, for three years, he's been with Jesus. Three years, he's been eating and sleeping and walking and talking and interacting with Jesus. Three years. That's a long time, both day and night. So Peter's been taught God's plan, has been taught by Jesus what his plan is. He's heard God's plan being talked about and the plan for Jesus and the cross. And, And Peter could see God's plan being unfolded before his very eyes. But because of his combative confidence, he was either, which I'm not sure, unable or unwilling to embrace God's plan. When you look at John 18, there is only one person in these 12 verses, one being, one divine being that fully understands everything. Look at verse 4 again in John chapter 18. Jesus, say this with me, fully realized all. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Staring betrayal in the face. That's what Jesus was doing. Staring betrayal in the face, Judas. And despite the pain of being betrayed, can you imagine that for a moment? Maybe you've been betrayed in your life. Jesus is looking betrayal in the face, the one who has betrayed him. And he realizes, fully realizes God's plan and embraces it. Rather than grabbing Peter's sword and doing Judas in because he's betrayed Jesus, Jesus understands fully God's plan and embraces it. Holds the cup of faith rather than wield the sword. Betrayal, pain, and suffering often make us combative. It would, we would much rather swing the sword than hold the cup of faith. We would much rather retaliate to someone who has hurt us than to love them and pray for them and embrace God's plan. Jesus realized betrayal and pain and suffering were part of God's plan. Do you? Some of the toughest things that we go through in life is God's plan, and they involve betrayal, pain, suffering. I heard a guy say this week, I want to go through stuff in life with an individual or a group of people who has gone through stuff in their life. Because if you've never gone through anything in your life, you're of no use to me when I'm going through stuff in my life. How can you help me? God knew, Jesus knew God's plan. Second, combative confidence is unable or unwilling to see God's authority. Jesus declared in front of Judas and everyone gathered there that day his authority. Blatantly, confidently, openly, he declared his authority. Jesus said two words. How did he respond to the soldiers? How did he respond to Judas? How did he respond to the religious leaders? He said two words, I am. I am. In that declaration of I am, Jesus was saying, I am Jesus the Nazarene. I am Jesus the bread of life. 
I am Jesus, the living water. I am Jesus, the beginning and the end. I am Jesus, the word who became flesh. John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and showed up in our neighborhood. Here we see John saying and confirming what he's writing in John chapter 1 by Jesus making the declaration, I am, I am the word who became flesh. I am who I am is what Jesus was saying, which was a declaration by God to Moses back in the, in the book of Exodus. Well, who should I say is sending me? And God said what? I am. Tell them the great I am has sent you. Jesus, the Nazarene, in verse 5, they replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, who, be who betrayed him, was standing with them. Combative confidence prevented the apostle from seeing the authority of Jesus. Why? Why did I come to that conclusion? Because if Peter had seen the authority of Jesus, if he knew fully the authority of Jesus, he would never have drawn the sword. He drew the sword because he didn't fully know the authority of Christ. A side note, I think a lot of us struggle with the authority of Christ. We don't fully understand the authority of Christ. We don't fully understand that God is completely and totally in control of all things. And so that's one issue that we wrestle with in our life. But there's another issue which Peter, I believe, is issuing, uh, is wrestling with. So as he's drawing the sword, I think he was didn't fully understand the authority of Christ, so he would have left the sword and on his side. He draws it out because he doesn't fully understand the authority of Christ, but he also draws the sword out because he feels the weakness of Christ, which was not weakness. But he's standing there, Jesus, if you're not going to defend yourself and stand up for yourself, then let me stand up for you because I want to defend you. You know what happens in the church all the time is that we pick up the sword because we think Jesus is weak, that he has no authority, that we don't want Jesus to look bad in the community. We don't want Jesus to look bad in our life. We don't want Jesus to look bad in the church. And so we pick up the sword and we fight for Jesus when he doesn't want us to fight at all. He wants us just to stand there because he already has all authority. He does. So Peter's wrestling here, which I think many of us wrestle with those things too. Finally, combative confidence is unable or unwilling to see God at work. Jesus was definitely at work in John chapter 18. I don't know if you ever, if you ever saw this, but we're going to go back to verse 6 because someone gasped when we read this one. And Jesus said, I am. So Jesus has made the declaration, I am. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I am the great I am. I am the one who God the Father has sent into this world. I am part of my Father. I come from the kingdom of God. He's made this declaration and they drew back and fell to the ground. All of them. From two words, I am. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen that. Jesus just saying, I am. And they stood back and to the ground. Two words. 
on the heels of Jesus declaring his divine authority by, declar- by his declaration, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have all authority and power on heaven. He's, he didn't say all of that. He just said, I am. Judas and the soldier step back and fall to the ground. In this moment, there is tremendous display of divine presence, of majesty, and the power of Christ. John clearly shows us that Jesus is in control. If we could just grab a hold of that. I have been in places and services where at the name of Jesus people have wept and confessed and fell to the ground. Lord, do it again that at the name of Jesus people fall in awe at the majesty and the authority and the work of Jesus Christ. Notice it was the cup, not the sword, that revealed the majestic authority of Jesus. It wasn't Jesus holding the sword up. It was just Jesus holding the Father's plan. I am. And his authority was revealed. Paul reminds us of the authority and work of Jesus in Romans chapter 14 when he writes in verse 10, remember we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for the scriptures say in verse 11, as surely as I live says the Lord, read it with me church, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. On that day let's be found holding the cup of faith rather than the combative sword of confidence, of self. The road to redemption acknowledges and accepts that God is in control and we are not. That God has all authority and we have none, except the authority that he gives us. In 1987, if you were around at that time, 18-month-old baby Jessica fell 22 feet into a Texas well. For 55 hours, it was on CNN and all the news brought. It was just like day and night. It was just all the time. Everybody, all eyes was on this little community in Texas of this little baby who fell down this well some 22 feet. Her life was hanging in the balance, and we literally watched on television her being rescued from the pit of this well. And it was almost like North America breathed a, sly, a sigh of relief and cheer as, the, as the, the men rescued her from the bottom of that well. Do you know what was not a story that day? That baby Jessica clawed her 18-month-old body up the side of that 22-foot well, inch by inch, digging her little toes in and working her way all the way up to the top of the well where she jumped out of the well and she was the hero. (laughs) I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) Didn't happen. Little Jessica, 18 months old, did not crawl out of the well by herself. Baby Jessica was utterly helpless, 
unable to do anything, unable to deliver herself. Her fate was in the hands of her rescuers. Left to herself, she would never have survived. It's eerily similar for us today, friends. It was the same for Peter. It is the same for us. We are powerless to save ourselves. And some of us are in a well, 25 some feet down into a pit. We might even call it the pit of hell. And we have no hope of saving ourselves. We need somebody to rescue us. Peter needed somebody to rescue him from the mess. And it was Jesus. We need somebody to rescue us today too. And it is who, friends? Jesus. Because Paul said at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly, the sinner, the one who was in the well who needs rescuing. Why not lay down your combative sword, pick up the cup of faith. Jesus laid his life down for us, amen? He has all authority and power. Ham and his wife laid down their life for Christ. And their story is still told in the nation of Cambodia. Will you lay down your life for Jesus? Do you need to travel to the road? Uh, do you need to travel the road to redemption? Do you need redemption in your life? Today's the day. Would you pow- bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. I'd love to pray with you this morning. If there is someone in this room this morning who needs to be rescued from the well, from the pit, Jesus is your rescuer today. Right now. I would encourage you to step out from wherever you're sitting and come right here to the front and we'll have some people pray with you and introduce you to a saving Savior named Jesus who is able to rescue you. Others of us in this room have picked up the sword far too many times. When Jesus is just asking us to hold the cup of faith He's not asking us to wield the combative sword of self. He's just saying, watch and see, I am in control. I have all authority. I have a plan. I'm at work. Trust me, have faith in me, and get rid of your pride. If that's you this morning, I'd love to pray for you this week. Just slip your hand up and put it back down and our staff will pray for you. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Father God, we thank you for your tremendous love and grace. We thank you for Peter's life. Many of us don't, wouldn't want to be a Peter, but we've learned so much from Peter. And we thank you that he found redemption in you. There are so many times that we act like Peter. You declare it. We argue it. 
Lord, this morning, I just pray for those who lifted up their hands this morning, who want to lay down the sword and just hold the cup of faith. Maybe, maybe there's some in this room who are just too shy, just too scared to step out and say, I need to be rescued from the pit. Lord, you are our only hope. There is no other hope that will deliver us from the well. There is no other plan, there is no other grace, there is no other authority than the authority that you have and that you give. You are the great I am, the living, the powerful, the water, the bread of life. We trust you today and we place our life in your hands. And Jesus, we want to be your light and beacon of hope. And we don't want to mess that up by our pride or self. We want to live your plan for our life. We want to be part of it, seeing it fulfilled in and through us, not trying to force it or change it, but to believe it and accept it. In your name we pray today that, Jesus, we will be more like you and less like Peter. In your name we pray. Amen.